All right. Is it better? Can you hear me? Okay. So I was saying, for Floridians, the idea of refuge is in the context of hurricane and storm. But for those people who are trying to cross the Rio Grande River from Mexico to Texas, the word refuge is a different matter as well because it takes a different meaning in a diff different context. But when David wrote a psalm in chapter 7 and he mentioned the word refuge, it takes also a different meaning. In Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, he said, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So the question here is, what did David mean when he mentioned the word refuge? I'm very sure it's different from the refuge in the context of a storm, refuge in the context of a political asylum. What did David mean when he used the word refuge? It probably it's, it's better if we complete the, the passage. But when David wrote Psalm chapter 7, he was referencing a time when his son Absalom rebelled against him, initiated a coup d'etat, and threatened to kill him. His own son, Absalom. And so David fled from Jerusalem. Instead of trusting the security of the thick walls of Jerusalem, he decided to take refuge in God. And along the way, going to the top of Mount Kidron, he was met by a man named Shimei. Shimei was a known antagonist of King David. And Shimei accused him of crimes that he didn't commit. David could have done something else. They could, David could have executed this man, but he remained quiet because he believed that God will give him justice. Instead, he kept his silence and did not retaliate until he writes Psalm chapter 7, 1 to 5. Let me read this for you. David said, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Again, he said, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now, at this very moment, in Psalm chapter 7, David was in deep agony over the thought that his own son would like to kill him. And certain people conspired against him. He was the king of Jerusalem. He was the king of Israel. He waited for so long after King Saul, and now his own son rebelled against him. So this idea of refuge for David is in context of having God to protect him, not just for his life, but for his kingdom and his kingship. And this kind of refuge takes on a concrete and physical reference. Let me transfer you to the book of Joshua chapter 20. We're continuing our series on this. Now we're in Joshua chapter 20. This kind of refuge has a concrete reference. Joshua 20 verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge for the avenger of blood. This is kind of a strange passage to study, but this is in the Bible, so we have to study this. Now, what, what's this? What's this passage talking about? 
See, the Levites among the 12 tribes of Israel were not given inheritance. They were given cities to live in. And among those cities, God decided that these six cities were to be cities of refuge. And the Levites were designed to live in those cities as a protector for the city of refuge. But what is this for? Let me give you an example. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says that is, if there's a man who, say for example, is cutting trees in the forest and using an axe, and he swings his axe, and the head of the axe disappears, swings by and flies by, and hits another person beside him and dies, uh, we call this homicide, correct? But instead of homicide, we have to clarify what kind of killing is this. This is not murder because murder has intent. He has no intent. It's completely accidental. In our modern parlance, we call this involuntary manslaughter. Are you still with me? Okay, we're not discussing this, but this is part of the, the text. Now, let me give you another example. Say, for example, you're eating a very yellow big banana. Good, okay? So you peel off your banana, you eat slowly, and then when you're done, you throw your banana peel on the side of the road without thinking of anything. And suddenly, the man walking behind you stepped on it because he was using his cell phone, doing Facebook. He was not minding. He stepped on the banana peel, slipped backwards, hits his head, and dies. It's called involuntary manslaughter. It's partly your fault because you throw the banana peel. But you did not intend to kill. What this passage is saying is that if something of this happens, this manslayer who killed without intent can flee to the city of refuge and he will be protected there. It doesn't mean that he will not, have, he will not meet his justice. It just means that he will be protected because this was done without intent. If this is a case, it is to avoid retaliation. This manslayer must take the nearest city of refuge because God wants to protect his life. But if, on the other hand, this person intentionally murdered someone and take refuge in the city, the people in the city of refuge, the Levites, are tasked to conduct a trial, and if he's found guilty, he will be handed over to be executed. Now, why is this necessary? Because God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Are you with me? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If a person kills without intent, his life must be protected. But if he, in, he killed with intent, he must be put to death. That's what we call justice. And why is that? Because justice must be compensatory. Small crime, small punishment. Big crime, big punishment. But I'd like to give you a more fundamental reason why this is necessary. Numbers chapter 35, verses 33 and 34, it says this. And this is by far the real reason why God has to institute this kind of justice. It says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. Now, we're not talking about littering. We're not talking about garbage and trash. We're talking about spiritual pollutants. It says, and no atonement can be made for the blood for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Now at this point, think of Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his own brother, and the land, and the blood of Abel was shed. 
and it's polluted. That's why God had to kick him out from the land. Verse 34, it says, You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Whenever I think of the word pollute and defile, I think of spoiled adobo. I cannot think of otherwise, but, you know, the, the, tr the most tragic thing is for adobo to be spoiled. But that's the idea here. The land will pollute and it will be defiled if blood is spilt. What does it mean? The passage is saying is that if they let the murderer go free, the land will pollute. It will be defiled. And also, on the other hand, if they harshly execute the one who murdered unintentionally and give him an, and execute him, then unnecessary blood is spilled. So either way, it defiles the land where God dwells. Of all places, God decides that Israel will become the promised land. Question is, is there something special with the promised land? The answer is no. It becomes special because God decides to dwell in the land. Just like in any other place, if God decides to dwell in that land, it becomes special because God is there. Not because the land is special in itself. Why is that? The whole point of the Holy Land is for the creation of a sacred space where man and God can live together. So think about this. Holiness is the prerequisite to living in this sacred space. If God is to share the sacred space with man, because God is holy, man must maintain the sort of holiness. God is holy, therefore, he requires Israel to live a holy life in order for them to share this space. And for holiness to be maintained, if blood is shed, atonement is necessary. See, atonement happens when a priest brings blood sacrifice inside the temple to pay for the sins of the people. No blood sacrifice, there's no cleansing of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. And this is the reason why the priest in Israel must go to the temple every day to offer blood sacrifice every day because sin happens every day. They offend God every day, both intentionally and unintentionally. So here's the thing. If they want to retain God's favor, they will have to offer blood daily. And, and I must say that it's expensive to remain holy. It's a bloody business. Atonement must be done every day, and blood sacrifice is its concrete form of repentance. See, now it's easy to appease God. We can just say, sorry, sorry I made this. But you see, in the time of the Israelites, they cannot just say sorry to God. They will have to sacrifice blood every day. The priest must go inside the temple, slaughter an animal, and offer a blood sacrifice every day. This is very expensive. Let's take it up a notch higher. It implies that if we do not reconcile with God, just as murder pollutes the land, our relationship with God becomes toxic. We're talking about us. Now imagine for a second that you only do your dishes on weekends. It piles up in the sink. It's not a good sight to see. Now imagine you only do your empty your garbage once a week. It's going to pile up. Imagine you only flush your toilet once a week. It's going to stink. I, I'm, it's, it's gross. Okay, I know. But here's the idea. You get the idea. They cannot afford 
not to offer blood sacrifice every day because the land will pollute. And if God shares the same space, they must maintain that sacred space with God or else God leaves the place, Israel. Did you know that when the Bible talks about marriage and marriage bed, it's always in the context of sanctity? Peter would, would talk about maintain the sanctity of the bed, of the marriage bed. What does it mean in, in practical terms? What it means is that couples who fight instead of pray in the bedroom pollute and defile it. If you're sitting with your spouse, then this is the time. What I'm saying is that it doesn't make sense for you not to reconcile every day. It doesn't make sense that you will have to wait at the end of the week to reconcile. I know of some couples who don't talk for a month. It's hard. It's hard not to be able to talk to someone. But they do it. The scriptures say, do not let the sun go down without being reconciled to one another. Why is that? Because God's presence reflects every relationship. Are you with me? Apostle Paul, even Apostle Peter, rather, even went as far as saying that some prayers are left unanswered or hindered because couples cannot reconcile. Do you believe it? You're not convinced. Let me show you. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, likewise, husbands, primarily, listen, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, honor is equals respect. That means respect the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see it. It's pointless for you to pray every day if you are not reconciled to your wife. I'm also practicing it with my wife. I have to reconcile with my wife every day. If I have to pray, if I'm to pray every day, I have to be reconciled every day. You see, this is the most practical way we can, we can reconcile with God and be reconciled to our wives so that our relationship with God will not be hindered. Let's take it on a national level. I want you to think about this. The CDC says in 2019, there's an estimate of about 600,000 plus deaths due to abortion in the United States alone which means there's at least 1,500 plus murder cases of abortion per day all over the 50 states combined. In Fort Lauderdale alone, the murder statistics, not abortion, is 11.37 in every 100,000 population. Now this is just murder and abortion. We haven't talked about rape or incest and robbery and gang violence and serial killings and school shootings yet. So if this is happening just outside the doorsteps, our doorsteps, imagine the implications to the presence of God living in our midst. The issue of abortion is not political. It's an issue of lifestyle. If you haven't decided yet, that's why you're not in, in it. I'm saying the issue of abortion is not political. It's an issue of lifestyle. See, abortion is a cultural war. Why is it? Because it's an issue of preference. It flies under the banner, my body, my choice. It's saying, I prioritize my choice over my welfare, my body against the welfare of, of the baby inside the womb. So this, this is not political. This is cultural. 
This is lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that devalues pre-born human beings. Human beings who are said, according to the Bible, to be made in the image of God. Yet, this lifestyle as well celebrates sexual perversion on the streets of America. And make no mistake about it, this is a culture war. And we, if we are followers of Jesus, we are caught in the middle of this war. And silence will not do us any good. Now, I understand that some of you are not political and some of you just want to be quiet. If you want, don't want to take it on the streets, at least take it to your Facebook accounts or your Twitter account. You have to say something. You cannot just be quiet all along. You see, this is the new America that forgets her Pledge of Allegiance. What does it say? It says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. We are one nation, 50 states under God, with liberty and justice for all. We're supposed to be indivisible as one nation under God. See, liberty and justice will not make sense because God is the basis of true liberty and justice. And until we put everything under God, liberty and justice won't make sense. Let me direct your attention to a very interesting insert in Joshua chapter 20. This talks about the death of the high priest. If you read Joshua chapter 20, you come across this in verse 6. It says, And he shall, it's talking about the manslayer, and he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. But what this passage is saying is that if you are a manslayer, if you killed accidentally, you fled to the city of refuge, you remain there. Say, for example, you've been there for five years now, and the high priest dies, suddenly you're free to go. You're free to go back. See, the city of refuge sort of functions like a prison. You're, you're to remain there. Because if you live the, ma the avenger of blood, the families of the victims may retaliate and kill you. They're permitted. So you have to stay there. But if the high priest dies, you're allowed to go back home. And why is that? What this passage is saying is that the manslayer is free to go, and by law, he cannot be pursued by the families of the victim once the high priest dies. This is a very strange law and only applies to Israel. What they're saying is that effectively when the priest dies, the sins for that year is forgiven. That means the sentence of the manslayer is considered served. Again, I'm saying this is a very unique law. There's no correspondence to our jurisprudence here in the United States. But the question is, what does this have to do with us? How does this concern me? The answer is everything. The better question is, if the high priest mediates for Israel, if the high priest is the one who offers blood sacrifice for every Israelite, the question is, who offers sacrifice for you? Who mediates for you? Who is our high priest? Who enters the most holy place to offer the blood sacrifice to make sure that we retain the favor of God instead of the wrath of God? But the scripture says that in Hebrew, it says that Jesus is the high priest. But wait, isn't it true that when Jesus was still alive, there were two high priests around? It was Annas and Caiaphas. You remember them? 
Annas was the original high priest. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Caiaphas was appointed by Rome because he was more amenable. He's corrupt. That's why he was there in the position. Now stay with me. Matthew tells us that the high priest and the elders in Matthew 26 had a secret meeting. They've been, they've been hearing about Jesus. They know that Jesus was popular. And Jesus has been telling them, you know, kind of instigating trouble because Jesus has been telling them, you don't need to go to the temple. I can forgive you. Remember, there are many instances where Jesus forgave. Jesus cleansed. Jesus healed. And so the high priests and the Sanhedrin, the council, are in big trouble because they are the religious authority. And now as if the allegiance of the people are transferred to Jesus as the new authority. And so in Matthew 26, they conspired to assassinate Jesus stealthily. You don't expect the high priest to be involved in a crime like this, in something like this. Let me read to you Matthew 26. It says that the, high, the chief priests, it's with S because there are two of them, and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed, in other version it, it says it, they plotted, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. If this is not assassination, I don't know what. Now we know that at, on the last day of Jesus Christ, they, he initiated this Passover and then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And in the garden, he was arrested and brought back to the high priest. And Caiaphas manipulated the events because he initiated this illegal and quick trial, which is forbidden by Jewish law because the following day is, is uh, Passover. So they cannot initiate a, a trial, but they did a quick trial for Jesus. And in the trial, you will find in Matthew chapter 26, that the high priest did something very, very unusual. When he asked Jesus if he was the son of God, Jesus replied with a coded message. And he got this. He got this. He knew the reference and he said, blasphemy. And what he did next was very interesting. This is what he did and it's very unimaginable. Matthew 26 verse 65. When he heard what Jesus said, he tore, he said blasphemy, and the high priest tore his robes and said he uttered blasphemy. Why is this unusual? What does it mean for the high priest to tear his robes? You see, the high priest, the robes of the high priest was specifically designed, and it was made to be holy. It was designed by God himself, and every part of it must be holy. There's a certain specific design for it. You find that in Leviticus 21. Now listen to this. It says, The high priest, the one among his brothers, who has had an anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair unkempt or tear his clothes. You see that? The high priest cannot just get out of bed and say, I woke up like this with hair unkempt. He cannot do that. He must be, you know, fixed. And he cannot tear his garments because that garment is the one that he used to enter the most holy place. He cannot do that. But you see, this is the problem. Caiaphas, the high priest, tore his robes. What does that mean? What this means is that 
there should never be any occasion where the high priest is allowed to tear or destroy or rend his garments, but that's exactly what Caiaphas did. This specific garment is the one that he used to enter the most holy place. That means to tear, its, to tear it is to symbolically end his career. Now there's another story. When the Israelites reached Mount Hor, together with Moses and the first generation, God instructed Moses that Aaron will die as punishment for his rebellion. You probably have read about this. It's in Numbers chapter 20. Now, we're talking about why Caiaphas tore his robes. Now, get this. This is another story. Numbers 20, verse 27. Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation, and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron died on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Do you recognize this? Because this is uncanny. Does it mean anything in connection to Caiaphas staring his robe? See, Aaron was stripped of his robe and Caiaphas stripped his robe and, and tore it. To tear it is to symbolically end his sacred duty as high priest because Aaron was the original high priest. When he was stripped of his garment, that was his duty. He's about to die. It was transferred to Eleazar, his son. When Caiaphas tore his robes, that, that's the end of his duty as high priest. And from that time, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the priestly line also ended. If you go to Israel now, there, there are no priests. There are no line of priests anymore because there's no temple in Israel. Because there's no need for a priest if there's no temple. Because there's no sacrifice that's being done. What this means is that no temple, no priest, no priest, no atonement for the sins of the people. So if there's no more high priest, who mediates for the sins of Israel? How are sins forgiven? Now Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The requirements of the high priest should be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Can you think of anyone who meets the same standard? Anyone? I'm very sure Caiaphas did not meet this standard. Anyone? See, the most solemn and most important job of the high priest was to enter the most holy place and to offer blood sacrifice. Listen to the book of Hebrews again, chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. If this is not too boring for you and you're still awake, but this means that the cross where Jesus hung became the new Ark of the Covenant. Because you see, the high priest, once a year, he would go inside the most holy place with blood, and he sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. It's the throne of God. See, the cross where Jesus hanged became the new Ark of the Covenant, where his blood is poured on that cross. Symbolically, 
Jesus became the high priest and brought his own innocent blood as payment for the sins of the whole world. If the high priest makes it out alive, it means that God accepted the sacrifice. You see, in Israel, whenever the high priest goes inside during Yom Kippur, all the people wait outside. Eagerly, they're waiting outside. Because if that high priest that year is found guilty of a sin or something, he will just simply die inside the most holy place. Because that place is sacred, it's holy. And the people are eagerly waiting outside. If the high priest makes it out alive, it means his sacrifice is accepted by God. How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God if he was our high priest who offered his own blood sacrifice? It says in the Bible that on Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. See, I know he died on the cross. But on Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. See, any condemned individual would not rise from the dead because that was his condemnation, death. A person who was executed for blasphemy, which Jesus was, according to the Sanhedrin, would incur God's wrath. And therefore, he would not rise from the dead. But the fact that Jesus was out of the tomb before even the disciples came and he appeared before Mary and, and the disciples, it means God accepted this sacrifice as high priest. I'm going to come full circle on this with the idea of refuge. When the high priest dies in Joshua, the manslayer goes free and his sentence is considered served. So if Jesus is our high priest, his death also means freedom for those who take refuge in him. But here's the problem. See, the manslayer killed without intent. Well, it's a different, different situation with us. Because when we sin, we sin both intentionally and unintentionally. See, we're not manslayers. We are intentional slayers. It's different. And so if we take refuge in Jesus, what I'm saying is that our sins are forgiven. When Jesus died, our sins are forgiven. Our sentence is served. How do we know that? Remember Jesus telling the crowd who is about to stone a woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw stone at her. And no one dared to stone the woman caught in adultery. Everybody left, which means everybody's guilty. What I'm saying is that whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are all guilty, equally guilty before God. No one can say, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty. Well, in one degree or another, we are all guilty. You see, the only difference between those inside the prison cells and us is the degree of sin and the fact that they were caught and we are not yet caught. But in the eyes of God, we are all guilty before God. But you see, again, if Jesus is our high priest, the true and indestructible eternal refuge, that means that means there's only one guarantee to our future. There's only one guarantee if there's a storm in life. There's one guarantee if we need asylum. There's one guarantee to the forgiveness of sins. That is in Jesus Christ, the true high priest. You see, we make ourselves secure by building ourselves houses made of straws and sticks 
and we think this is our refuge. We do that when we assure ourselves that we did enough good, enough kindness as a way to atone for our sins. Now, we have to remember, forgiveness can only be achieved by atonement, and atonement must be paid in blood. We cannot pay by blood. Only Jesus Christ paid with blood. What I'm saying is that doing good and doing kindness is good, but it's not an atonement. It can never be an atonement for us. It's nothing but a house of straws and sticks. The only true atonement, the only true refuge is through Jesus, the high priest, who offered his blood once and for all. And that's the only basis of forgiveness in the eyes of God. You cannot atone for yourselves. I cannot atone for you. Only Jesus can atone for everyone. See, David understood this. David understood, so he wrote another psalm, Psalm chapter 18, and he goes with this. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came before him into his ears. So he parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes, who were too strong for me. And as for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters, there's only one refuge, and that's the Lord's. Would you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to remember that there's only one refuge, that there's only one high priest that mediates for us and for our sins, that this high priest already paid and atoned for our sins. He paid with his own precious blood. Father, I pray that you will not let us be secure with our acts of kindness, acts of goodness, and thinking that we're trying to atone for our sins because we cannot. Father, allow us to fully trust in you, to fully trust in what you did for us so that we can retain God's favor. Father, we want to stay in your mercy and your grace. Allow us, Father, to experience that. In Jesus' name.